What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Washington. Happy birthday, oh father of our country. Happy birthday to you. Good evening, friends. You know, uh, this, uh, I mean, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, we get this big, uh, 12 day weekends that are now beginning to, be. I get a lot of, I, bet, uh, I really bet a lot of uh, unions are bugged that uh, no matter how you work on a weekend, it's still only two days. I mean, you know, isn't the weekend Saturday and Sunday? Or, or has there been a new definition of the weekend? Uh, I think there has been, actually. The weekend really begins around uh, 1 o'clock Wednesday. And, uh, you know, psychologically. And it's in full-blown force by Thursday. And uh, usually begins to peter out around uh, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. Now, the week, actually, now, the, what we know of, of as the week, <laughs> the week is actually uh, Tuesday afternoon, yeah, bring them both in, and most of Thursday, or rather, most of Wednesday, that's the week. La-da-dee-dee-dee, and the weekend, of course, goes on forever. La-da-dee-dee-dee-dee. Ah, we are becoming a hedonistic country. In fact, uh, you know, uh, with the disappearance of the old-fashioned work ethic, as they refer to as the work ethic, whatever the hell that is. But the disappearance of the work ethic, which is taking place rapidly, uh, the idea of being unemployed is almost disappearing itself. I mean, if there's no work ethic, how can you be unemployed? Oh, yeah, it is tonight, of course. This is George Washington's official birthday, in spite of the fact we've been off for weeks now celebrating it. So would you please... Give me my George Washington uh, birthday music, please, if you want. No, that's not the one. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Sorry. That's not the one. We counted the, the things wrong then. It is American Patrol I wish you to play. 
There, that's the better one. See, it comes out with a flute or a piccolo, I believe. That's hardly George Washington music. It sounded like you were playing the caissons go rolling along. That ain't George. Just let me know when you guys... You don't have to cue it up. Just let it go. That's all I say. George is a very tolerant man. Let go of that. That's it. Now you're talking to George. That's it. Bring it in there, big there. There you go. You know, it seems to me that hardly anybody today on radio or television, whenever we come along with our big national holidays, ever discusses the holiday. All they discuss are the sales related to the holiday. And so you have a pre-Lincoln's birthday sale. You have a Lincoln's birthday sale and a post-Lincoln birthday sale. And you have a pre-George Washington sale and a George Washington sale and a post-George Washington sale. Not to mention pre-, post-, and anti-Valentine Day sales. There is Father's Day sale, post- and anti-, anti, excuse me. And uh, it goes on down the line. That's all I ever talk about is the sales. We are living, George, in an increasingly materialistic society. Do you know, George, how much your false teeth are now worth on the open market? Uh, regardless of what you paid for them, George, but my God, they've gone up in value. Thank you, thank you. Hold it, hold it. That's enough, that's enough. We reset that, though. We may be using that a little bit later here. You know, since uh, George Washington is the father of our country, generally considered to be that, who is the mother, anyway? One cannot have a, you know, a father without a mother, unless this is a curious, hermaphroditic situation, which I do not suspect was true. But, the, you know, speaking of George Washington, we might as well talk seriously about George. Uh, I was looking at the Smithsonian Institute. It's not, is it the institution? Institution. The Smithsonian Institution Publication, which is, very, by the way, a very good magazine. Enjoy it. Did you see the piece in, in the uh, magazine recently, uh, Jerry, about George Washington's teeth? Well, I, I'm here to disabuse you of an old, happily held myth for years. I, I admit, I, 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 uh, I held this belief for a long time. George Washington, I repeat, never wore wooden false teeth. I repeat, uh, for those of you who are taking notes, George Washington never wore wooden false teeth, in spite of the myth to the contrary. Now, I know a lot of you are going to whip out badly written books on the subject that prove, quote, that he did. This is not so. I have it on no less an authority than the Smithsonian Institution, which is about as official as you can get in that department. In fact, they've even got George Washington's pants there. Did you know that? They've got a pair of George Washington shoes on display, the real thing, as uh, they say in Virginia. And uh, he, you know, a lot of his stuff is there, and they have a couple of pairs of George Washington's actual teeth that he did wear. Now, what were they made of? You'd <laughs> like to know. This is kind of a gruesome subject, but what were they made of? Well, you see, George wasn't alone. A lot of people had, uh, had problems with their teeth in those days. 
Uh, and uh, the problems, of course, were due to many things. One of the things was uh, they didn't have much of a knowledge of, uh, of nutrition that we have today. So they ate a lot of stuff they shouldn't have eaten, and a lot of stuff they should have eaten they didn't. And so they had teeth problems quite often, and it's also hereditary, too. So George had his problems. Now, uh, what were his teeth made of? Well, there's been considerable conjecture on that. They were made of three materials because he wore several sets throughout his lifetime. And uh, they were made by uh, top uh, denture makers of the day. And you know that, uh, that the teeth were held in in those days by spring action. That's pretty interesting. In other words, the teeth were, were together. You know, they had the, uh, the upper teeth and the lower teeth were held together by a very sharp way, by a spring. See, and they would, they would snap open. So when you took about a boing like that, see, and they snap on you. So the teeth always looked like they were about to bite into a bagel when they were open. So then you just press them together, apparently the way they worked, and you put them in your trap and let go of them, and boing, they'd snap open like that and fit, theoretically, uh, on the gums, right? And, uh, of course, the, at that point, your jaw was under constant tension because you had to keep your teeth clamped open or t together see so if you ever just relax pow your mouth would open up and you know so it's uh, kind of embarrassing however they were effective apparently now what were they made of george washington's teeth well according to the piece in the smithsonian institutions magazine uh several eminent uh, uh false teethologists who have studied uh, the uh the objects in uh, question say that one was apparently made of, the one that they have, was apparently made of ivory, elephant ivory. See, they didn't have uh, the vinyl substitutions that we have today. Most teeth, I guess, are made, anybody who's got dentures, and I'm pleased to report, I'm lucky to report that I do not, but uh, anybody who does uh, is wearing, I guess, vinyl-type things, that are not necessarily vinyl, but uh, of, of various... Uh, Plastic compounds are used to make these teeth today. Uh, there wasn't, uh, uh, not too long ago, that they used to actually make teeth, false teeth, out of real human teeth. That must have been something. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they did. But uh, now they make them out of, out of this vinyl stuff. In, George, in George's day, they made them out of numerous substances. And one uh, substance that George has had, he had these, uh, he had these beautiful elephant ivory teeth. And then uh, there was another set made for him, which has mystified observers and, and specialists for a long time. Uh, they were not made of uh, ivory, the elephant, and uh, they, they kept speculating on what it was, and they finally came across what it was. There was a rumor on that they had been made out of elk's teeth, <laughs> actual elk's teeth, which were uh, uh, somehow uh, sharpened or changed or carved down to the right size, and then there was a rumor that they were made out of cattle teeth and so forth. But it turns out, according to the latest information, that his teeth were made out of, get this one, hippopotamus ivory. Right? Now that is one hell of a uh, thing to have, especially back in those days. That was that was about 17-something. It was uh, probably, it was before the Revolutionary War he had these choppers made. And, uh, at that time, there were not many hippopotami that were being bagged regularly because Africa was an absolutely, almost totally unknown continent at the time. 
So you can imagine what a pair of hippopotamus teeth choppers went for. I mean, what they were worth, you know. <laughs> so that's what that one is made of. Now, the other one, it was made of lead. And maybe this is where the rumor of uh, the wooden teeth got out, because lead, when it uh, tends to be, you know, when it's oxidized, tends to get a sort of a darkish color. And the probably people seeing these things said, well, they look, look, they're made out of wood. No, they were made out of lead. And they, if you can imagine a guy walking around with two sets of teeth made out of lead, that takes a, yes, sir, that takes a, a man with a strong back. I mean, uh, you must uh, really want to eat apples a hell of a lot to have to wear those. But the, he wore lead teeth for a while. <laughs> those must have been his combat teeth. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but uh, but this is, a, this is a great myth, you know. It's always going around uh, his wooden teeth. And uh, there are a couple of... Uh, of his sets of teeth that are around. One set has disappeared that they have a record of. They don't know where they went. But uh, they disappeared somewhere into some uh, attic someplace, and they've never been found. Uh, but uh, this is the actual story of George Washington's teeth. Now, oh, and one other little thing about George, too, kind of interesting. If you take out a dollar bill right now at this point, take out a dollar bill. Yeah, go ahead. Do it. I mean, I, that is all of you that got it. If you got a quarter and a nickel, it won't work. Take out a dollar bill, see? And all of you, you smart guys that are taking out the 20, that won't work either. Take out a buck, okay? Now, you will notice on the dollar bill, there is a picture of uh, the father of our country, George Washington. Now, you will also notice that he seems to have a rather a tight-lipped look about him. You notice that look? Now, there has been for a long time rumors that uh, this was because of his teeth. Not so, according to experts who, were, who, were, uh, who know the, the, the people of the time, very seriously studied them and, and know what was going on. A man who painted that picture, the picture upon which that engraving is based, is who, Jerry? Come on, Jerry, you know, a very famous uh, painter of that period. Who was it? Well, Stuart. Okay, uh, and uh, that that is uh, is based on a famous painting by Stuart George Stuart. I believe his first name was George, who uh, painted this famous portrait of George Washington. It's the one that most of us know, as a matter of fact. Now, this was before the days of photography. They didn't they didn't have cameras around, so nobody. In fact, cameras were invented. Uh, something like 60 to 70 years after he died, after his death. Uh, so the only actual representation of George Washington, how he really looked, are found in paintings of the period. Now, the paintings go in, you know, a painter is a painter. And uh, on the one hand, certain painters were very romantic, and they would romanticize everything. So, so uh, you know, you get this painting of George Washington. In fact, all the so you've seen those, those paintings of the big battle scenes and that. And all the soldiers look like uh, either either Gregory Peck or uh, they look like a cherubim. It's very difficult to tell. They don't look like real people. They all look heroic. And, uh, you know, so it's difficult to know what Washington looked like from one of those guys because those guys were, you know, they were just jazzing it up. They, they were writing, uh, they were painting allegorical romantic paintings. Now, uh, on the other hand, you had the other extreme. It is known among experts of the period that Stuart disliked Washington intensely. 
and did everything he could to make Washington look like a an unpleasant person. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And that is the not you know he couldn't do much he could because after all there was Washington everyone could see the painting but he did everything he could to catch him in a, in an unflattering scene so he had him in this grim humorless uh, way he was painted that way and that's the one you you see on the dollar bill take a look at it he has this this uh, some, even he, he looks a little sneaky in fact this is W O R New York. But uh, he does he does look a little sneaky. Look at him. I mean, can you imagine a little thing on it? Would you buy a used car from this man? Look at him. I mean, he's looking sideways out of the corner of his eye, and he's got the he's got really he does. Take a look at him. Look look at the dollar bill. Look at him. Well, uh, he he does when you look at it that way. He looks very sneaky. He looks not only sneaky. He looks rather haughty, and uh, in addition to that, he looks like he's disdainful. And there's a slight curl to the right lip, you know. He's, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, oh, yeah, you know, that, that kind of look. Well, they say that in real life, George Washington did not look like this. Of course, let's face one thing, that if, if you're a painter, you can catch a guy's expression any way you want. In the middle of a yawn, you can make a guy look, you know, here he is. He's the greatest thinker of all time. So if you paint him while he's just about to start a yawn, which is a natural physical thing that comes from no oxygen in the bloodstream, I guess. Uh, you could make the guy look like a, like a, you know, like a, a real bill doc, you know. And sure. So a painter can can do pretty much what he wants, especially if he's got a, a really subtle brush stroke, which Stewart did have. Stewart was an elegant portraitist and extremely talented, technically. So he could do almost anything he wanted without running the risk of getting chased out of town. In other words, without painting a guy in an absolutely, totally ridiculous uh, vein. Uh, which brings up another point. And the question is, well, why didn't Washington object to this? Well, Washington is an interesting guy. From accounts of the time, Washington had very little vanity. In other words, the, paint, uh, the picture was painted, and he says, okay, fine. And that was it. He walked away. Now... If that was, say, uh, um, let's ch just say somebody who has extreme vanity. Let's say, uh, let's just take somebody, for example, just, uh, if, if Jaja Gabor will say that had been painted ever, she would have bought up all the copies, destroyed it, had the guy beheaded, and, <laughs> and gone on to get five other painters to get the right one. But Washington wasn't like that. And Stewart was the most famous painter of the time, so naturally you'd have your portrait painted for the White House and all by Stewart. So... If Stewart wanted to make you look like King Kong, you'd say, well, you know, he's, he knows what he's doing. You walk away, if you were Washington. So uh, Washington, now, if you weren't Washington, you probably would kick him in the in the buskin or whatever they wore at the time and, you know, bust his brushes over his ear and, and uh, get, a, get a painter that did it right. But in the case of Stewart, it was known that Stewart did not like Washington. I do not know what reason he found against, you know, why he didn't like Washington, but he's not. And uh, so there is a great feeling among uh, experts that Washington didn't look exactly the way we think he looked. That his expression and his general air about him were very different than what we get. In fact, uh, in the same piece in the Smithsonian Institution magazine, they reproduced a life mask that was made of him. Did you see that life mask? Well, he doesn't look like this. 
the life mask was there. It was actually a mask made of of uh, his face during his lifetime. And uh, he, he certainly didn't look that way. Which surprised you. First of all, he has, a, as you notice, his nose. Take a look at his nose in the picture. He has a very aquiline nose. It's a very straight, uh, uh, aquiline, uh, thin, aristocratic nose. It was even more so in the life mask. You agree, Jerry? Uh, his mouth didn't look anything like this. In fact, his mouth, uh, if anything, uh, I was immediately, you know, just casually hit, looked a little bit like, say, uh, Paul Newman's mouth or something. You, you know, very uh, non... Uh, you wouldn't be impressed right away that this guy looked grim or anything. He didn't look that way. But he had a far... And his cheekbones were far more uh, prominent in the life mask that was made. In other words, he had a rather aquiline face, thin, uh, more or less like... Uh, um, it looked a little bit like, uh, for example, the late Leslie Howard, if you've ever seen pictures of that, of him. You remember, Jerry? Well, you'll have to consult your atlas and find out what he looked like. You know, apparently, I can't understand how you, being such a movie buff, don't know what Leslie Howard looked like. That surprises me. I mean, what kind of film festivals do you go to? I think there was one's on 42nd Street, you know, where the guys with the black socks and the mustaches are in. Uh, I don't know. Because uh, Leslie Howard is the guy that was in uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. He played a, a leading role in Gone with the Wind. Uh, and he was had a thin, aquiline face. And that looked a little bit more like the way Washington actually looked. And he was big, you know. Well, by the standards of the time, Washington was over six feet tall and big. I mean, he, he was, he was uh, six feet one or two or something like that. And he weighed well over 200. And he was a very, very powerful guy. Uh, by the standards of the time. Every account of George Washington that is around uh, about his days when he was uh, with the, uh, in the Indian Wars and all, you know, he was a colonel, uh, that he was a really powerful, tough guy. And, I mean, physically tough. And, uh, and his physical toughness remained with him throughout most of his life. And he was an elegant dresser. You know, his, his cuts of his uniforms were good. And he was, he was a very wide-shouldered, big guy. And uh, the actual color of his hair, we always think of him as with this white hair. Well, actually, that was a wig, you know. They wore, they wore wigs in those days, especially when statesmen and official people were sitting down for their portrait. That was the style of the day. Well, what was his hair actually like? What color was his hair? You didn't find that in the Smithsonian, did you? Well, you're going to find something out from me. What was his, well, the color of his hair? Well, his hair was a dark, sandy brown, the color of his hair, which we completely would throw you, you know, because you used to think of, of Washington with his white hair and all that stuff, you know. Actually, that was a wig. <laughs> and, and, and the actual Washington, he wore it, incidentally, in a pigtail in the back, just the way, uh, you know, it's kind of a hip thing to do these days. He wore it in the back in a pigtail. And it was dark, sandy, and his eyes were a, uh, a greenish-blue, according to certain accounts that uh, remain from people who were there and saw him. And uh, he also had a... He, his voice, by the way, was a, uh, was a voice... He didn't talk much. He was not uh, particularly loquacious. He didn't... He didn't, uh, wasn't much of a talker, 
Although when he was a talker, he when he did talk, he had the absolute, uh, one of the things that made him what he was, was he was a born commander. And when he talked, people listened. And uh, he, he was a man of action, and he'd just lay it out. Another thing that he was famous for uh, in those days was uh, Mr. Washington uh, was, uh, was also, of course, which was common among army officers and people of that period, he was a consummate horseman. And he was, he was really an elegant rider. Uh, his, by the way, that's another thing. Is that he's not the only president who was also that. Uh, another rider who spent mo- many, many years of his life on a horse, you don't think of him much that way because he's never shown that way, was Lincoln. Lincoln traveled many, many years around the circuit riding a horse. And he was a, he was a horseman and, in fact, rode many days to his uh, office in Washington. He did not live in Lincoln, incidentally, during the days when he was in Washington. Washington was a very hot town in the summertime. No air conditioning, nothing like that. Washington still remains hot. So he lived outside of Washington. He would live at an army post out of Washington, and every day he would ride to his office on a horse. And people would see him. There was the president down the street riding on his horse. And around him, there was always a contingent of cavalry that would ride sort of uh, around him like an escort and uh, sort of a bodyguard, which he did not want, by the way. Presidents seemed to have an idea they never want any of this stuff, but he didn't. But he did. He got them. There were 26 guys who would ride around him with drawn sabers, sort of like an attention. Well, they didn't do it to, you know, that was sort of a, a, a mark of salute. After all, it was the president. So they would, they would march down, they would go down the street, and Lincoln would uh, wave the people along on the way. He would wear his tall black hat and uh, ride. He rode, the, he rode in a very straight, upright way of riding. And uh, he was a good rider, and he would ride along, wave at people, talk to people on the way, and on his way to work <laughs> through Washington. Now, George, on the other hand, was a much more spectacular rider. In fact, there are many accounts of George Washington galloping around uh, during a battle, particularly in this area, New York, when they were having the Battle of Washington Heights. Uh, Lincoln's uh, horsemanship was noted by more than one observer. Notably, incidentally, a French observer who uh, was assigned to the army, the the, uh, Revolutionary Army at the time, and was writing back accounts for the French newspapers. You know, he was like a, a war correspondent. He was... He was amazed at Washington's horsemanship and wrote about it. He said that Washington would, would gallop up and down with fantastic pace on this giant horse he had, who incidentally is a famous horse, and uh, he would ride up and down, and he, he could apparently really control his horse, and he would wheel, and he would spin back and, and uh, delivering commands and exhortations to the troop. But what got, what got the rider was his horsemanship. He's a guy who could ride like a demon. So... <laughs> So these statues that you see once in a while of guys like Washington sitting on a horse with the horse rearing up, or, these are not necessarily fiction. Because in the days when an army officer did not have jeeps and uh, you know didn't have a, a two-way walkie-talkie radios and the command post and all the rest of it, he personally would gallop up and down and, and yell and holler and uh, kick guys in the behind and do all the rest of it you had to do to get them to go, see? And so it took a good horseman to really do this. And uh, Washington was one, apparently a fantastic horseman. Uh, there were other things he was. Of course, he was famous for his athletics. He was a famous, uh, famous athlete of his day, uh, taking part in all the various athletics of the day. For example, uh, 
he would take part in uh, horse shows of one kind or another, races, and uh, jumping contests with horses, which takes a good horseman. Uh, he uh, he was uh, also a famous wrestler, by the way, in, in the, the, the Lincolnian tradition. And it was a tough guy. On more than one occasion, by the way, uh, Mr. Washington was known to, uh, when, when, when uh, somebody made a smart remark, say, okay, let's go back at a tent and talk it over. And uh, you, you, you want to say that? I'll take, off my, I'll take off my epaulets and let's go around the back and we'll find out. And within five minutes, he'd be mixing it up back there. <laughs> and, and he rarely lost because he was tough. He was really a... He, he did it. He was mean and a very interesting man. We don't think of him this way, of course. Oh, another thing about Mr. Washington that is not uh, as often discussed as should be, really, is that Mr. Washington was a man of uh, large appetites. Uh, this comes from many years spent in the field, squatting in a tent, uh, walking around out in the snow, uh, riding a horse. You do not live on Nabisco wafers at that point. Uh, you, you're a different type of guy. He was very ill at ease, incidentally, in, in the, the salon situations. Uh, where the situation would come, you know, they're having an elegant minuet type affair, and the Washington would show up. First of all, he was large. He was very conscious of that. That uh, most of the guys around him were of much smaller size. Do you know that the, that the that the average size of the average foot soldier in the Revolutionary War, this may surprise you, was around five feet six. And uh, so naturally, he, you know, going over six feet, he was six feet two or something like that. He was a giant by his day. We don't think of that as particularly immense these days, but he was an enormous guy for the period. So he would walk into these elegant salons. He'd tower over everybody else, you know. I mean, he, he was big, and he just, uh, according to the reports, he was an elegant dancer, by the way, but was not at ease in that surrounding. Uh and he had a good eye for the ladies, which uh, has been recorded. I mean, certain things. There are certain implications in several letters that Martha wrote to other people. But George was at it again. Uh, she never really spelled out what he was at. But uh, various social historians have, have, uh, have formed various conjectures about it. <laughs> so George, out in the woodshed, was not necessarily chopping down cherry trees. Now, George... Uh, among other things, as far as his uh, appetites are concerned, uh, George uh, had a favorite drink. Now, we all know that, uh, that Mr. Grant had a favorite drink, and what was Mr. Grant's favorite drink? What did he drink? Huh? Bourbon, right. What did Mr. Lincoln like occasionally? After a big row with Mary in the green room uh, about uh, why in the hell they had to go out and buy four more crystal chandeliers, when they're fighting on the Potomac, uh, which happened all the time during her, her time, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what did he drink? Well, we'll let you think about that. That'll be your homework for tomorrow. But Mr. Washington, in fact, uh, he, was, he never traveled unless he carried along two or three casks of his favorite uh, beverage. And what was his favorite beverage? It was not bourbon. Because bourbon had not been invented yet at that time. It may surprise you. Bourbon was a later development. What did he drink? Well, I'll tell you. He drank Madeira wine. 
uh, Madeira wine, which is still available. If you'd like to drink like George, well, you can lay into a little of that Madeira punch. Uh, now, what was Madeira punch? Well, that that, that was uh, composed of various fruit juices and some rum mixed with uh, Madeira wine. It was a poisonous mixture. Uh, but the the the, uh, the dandies of the period, who when you know an elegant ball was to be thrown in Washington when Mister when Mister Washington was in the in the White House, uh, would uh, would uh, drink Madeira punch, which uh, uh, to those who have, who have tried it recently, they can't figure out what in the hell they saw in it. it. Was a mean drink, and produces probably one of the best headaches this side of getting hit by a Louisville slugger behind the ear. It's a mean, mean drink. And these guys consumed gallons of it. They were really something else. Uh, their, their consumption was incredible. And uh, Washington drank Madeira wine by the cask. He was always in his tent. And whenever his, uh, his uh, deputies would appear, when uh, Benedict Arnold would sit down with his latest report, uh, Washington would call for a couple of flagons of Madeira. And they would sit down and drink Madeira wine. Of course, look where it got Benedict Arnold. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, he, he also would do this with, uh, with the Marquis de Lafayette, who would uh, show up and they would have some Madeira wine, which incidentally was, uh, was put down by, by uh, the Marquis de, La, de Lafayette because he, he, being French, did not necessarily think Madeira was the greatest wine he'd ever tasted. And, uh, <laughs> so there was a little snobbery already beginning to grow in that department. But since they were out in the field, Lafayette took what he could get. It was either that or local apple cider. And uh, so Madeira wine made it pretty well out in the field. And uh, Madeira wine and rum, which uh, was uh, available at the time, rum at that time was uh, doled out to the troops. Uh, in the British tradition, British, uh, uh, the tot of rum was given to every troop. as part of his pay, as a matter of fact. And it was, it was a part of his, uh, his enlistment papers that he would be given this. And uh, wherever they went, the tot of rum. You know that what was considered a great uh, cold remedy of the period was uh, rum mixed with a little lemon and a teaspoon or so of black (laughs) gunpowder. Well, (laughs) that would cure a lot of things. I'll tell you, you didn't do much smoking after you had that for a while. But uh, (laughs) nevertheless... Uh, they they uh, they would go, and then that brings up another point. They they smoked tobacco, of course, in those days. Smoking was becoming quite popular, and uh, the cigarette had not yet been invented. Uh, so smoking was generally done through with pipes. They smoked pipes mostly. Uh, occasionally, a, a a crude form of cigar was smoked, in which uh, tobacco leaves were just sort of twisted together in, into a, into a little zeppelin shape, and they'd smoke that. But that was not too too uh, common. They smoked pipes. Clay pipes, for example, were a big thing. You know, whenever they find a, a, uh, an encampment where uh, the revolutionary troops encamp, they always find, uh, this is one of the ways they know that they're near an encampment, they find many, many broken bits of clay pipes because the clay pipe was the commonest form of pipe of the period. And uh, that the, the, the sutlers, uh, sutler was the quartermaster of that period, would travel with the troops. And by the way, the sutler was generally a civilian, and he would travel with the troops, and they could get these. They could procure these things through him, and th- tobacco also. Tobacco, at one time, was given to troops. 
just along with their rum. They were given a, a small portion, a daily portion of tobacco. Now, what was their tobacco like? It wasn't like what you think of today. It was tobacco which had been, it was more like twist plug tobacco, like we would call chewing tobacco. And it was in a, in a twisted form, like a, uh, in fact, you know, some of that still exists. Uh, I saw a couple of, uh, of twists of tobacco that uh, were authentic Revolutionary War tobacco that had been found in a warehouse or someplace that still exists. So these things are not just, uh, you know, supposition. They were they're, they're real. So this twist of tobacco was given to guys by the length. They would say two inches of a twist of tobacco to be given to each man daily. And uh, that would be part of his enlistment. And they just whack off two inches of this stuff and give it to him. Now, how did he smoke it in a pipe? Well, just the way uh, you'd think. He didn't crumble up. He'd just break off a piece of this and stuff it down in the pipe and light it up. Now, the tobacco, though, was tobacco a little different from ours because uh, they didn't have the same drying and all this uh, technology that we've got. And the tobacco was generally soaked in rum, and it, uh, it was often soaked in molasses. To, to preserve it. So it was more of a dark, viscous type of stuff and uh, very difficult to keep lit. <laughs> so one of the problems was always keeping your pipe lit. And uh, these guys would... And one of the reasons they smoked these pipes, by the way, it was a very practical reason, not because they were simply hung on, the, on the tobacco particularly, but it kept them warm. Uh, if a guy is, 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 is in a place like Valley Forge, the fact that he's got a little lighted pipe in front of his face gave him a certain amount of warmth. And in the summertime, with millions of mosquitoes, because a lot of the ground they fought on was marshy, over in Jersey, for example, it still is that way. <laughs> and and uh, the, the pipe was a very definite uh, fighter against the mosquitoes and the insects and so on. So George Washington... And his Madeira, a very interesting story. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much you can say about a guy like Washington that, uh, you know, there, 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 are, uh, there is evidence around that Washington realized uh, that he really was uh, instrumental in, uh, in the formation of the country. And, uh, he, you know, he, he knew this. And uh, more than that, uh, there was a great, uh, a great, fantastic interest in Washington throughout Europe. Uh, uh, after uh, and during the Revolutionary War. Washington was almost like a legendary mythological figure to them. He, uh, he was much more legendary to the Europeans than he was to Americans of the time. Because, you know, they saw him. He, he, was, uh, he was a hometown boy. But uh, over there, the, the name Washington became almost uh, like... like uh, well, like we would think of as uh, Alexander the Great or something like that. He was a very legendary, mythical character. And reports would come back of his... his, uh, his Because, you see, he beat at the time, if you realize what he did. He beat the strongest and the most uh, highly regarded armed force in the world. Uh, the British armed forces of that time stood alone. <laughs> After all, uh, they had been pretty successful everywhere. And uh, some of the, their greatest generals were over here. And uh, here this raggle-taggle bunch of guys hiding behind trees, you know, and walking around in the snow actually brought that army down to nothing. So that made Washington seem almost, you know, he was, he was just like a, 
like a magical being. And in some ways, he really was, because there were many areas of, of uh, periods of time during the Revolutionary War when everybody was given up. They didn't forget it. They were going home by the thousands. Uh, they, you know, let's, let's give this thing up. All the while, you know, there were large numbers of people. It's not new, you know, that people flee up to Canada because they don't like the government. Uh, this most recent wave of people during the Vietnamese affair uh, was matched during the revolutionary times with great numbers of people who fled up to Canada because they were largely anti-war. They were the peace people of their day. Many of them were also Tories, but many of them simply were people who did not believe that uh, we should have any war. They wanted a peaceful way. They, they, they believed in peace, and uh, they, they thought their government was a bunch of warmongering uh, knaves and idiots. This is a fact, and they took off. It's all right, Jerry, I see it. And they took off and fled up to Canada, and their families still remain up there. And, of course, that's been a long time ago, but uh, there were many, many of them who went up and, and left their states in places like Michigan and uh, not not Michigan at that time, but places like New York State and, and the Maine and New England, and they just took off and went up to Canada. Now, one thing they did not have, we have absolute evidence, irrefutable evidence. There was no wonton soup served at any point uh, to the Revolutionary War soldiers. However, there were some, there actually was some served. There were some Chinese here. And uh, we would like to recommend, for those of you that would like to taste something that George Washington never even knew about during his whole lifetime. It's a totally unique experience. Uh, the House of Chan, 52nd and 7th, uh, 7th Avenue here in New York City. They have a great, fine Chinese restaurant. If you're coming in, uh, you know, to celebrate Washington's birthday, yeah, well, you can, uh, you can toast them in sweet and sour wonton soup, you know? And uh, they have a bar there, elegant bar. Maybe they even have some Madeira there. I don't know. Ask them for it. Uh, they have a bar. 52nd and 7th, open seven days a week, and they're open till midnight. Uh, civilized people. And the food is inscrutably delicious. But uh, George, uh, George has always fascinated me. Ever since the time when I was in second grade and I, I played George Washington in a pageant. Uh, I did. I played George Washington in a pageant. I had a white wig and a whole bit. That uh, I've somehow related myself to George. <laughs> it's been an empathy. I know how it feels to sit. Uh, in that lonely pinnacle and be the father of your country. Being a method actor, I could feel it, you know. And Martha rocking beside me. And so uh, uh, we would like to say at this point, happy birthday, George. My God, you did a good job. In spite of what they say, this is a very interesting country that you created. And uh, it has its faults, but then so does, you know, you name it. Eden has its faults, too. For example, the climate, I understand, is extremely monotonous in Eden. It's always 72 degrees, and, you know, it's, for anybody that likes a little spot of skiing now and then, Eden is hell half the time. So uh, there's just nothing that can solve all problems and satisfy everybody. And George, you did a good job. My God, you did. Uh, just think, if, if uh, George hadn't pulled off the stunt that he did with all of his buddies... Do you realize what we'd be doing around? We'd be walking around talking about things like the devaluation of the pound. Wouldn't that be silly? You know? Can't see yourself going to the Gristides and ordering, uh, give me two shillings worth of fig newtons. So, uh, things, you know, things have worked out pretty well, George. 
couple of hundred years, it's still going along good. They're still griping and yelling, just the way it was in your time, packing off and going to Canada. Same hoopla, George. You'd recognize the old place. They've improved the teeth a little bit, but, uh, you know, not that much. I, I had one guy that went, a friend of mine went back to his dentist eight times before he finally gave up, and he just gums his salami now. So, George, uh, things haven't changed that much. Okay. Thank you, George. You did a good job for all of us.